If you could turn in your Bibles, if you have one, or on your phone to uh, Jeremiah 29, that is where we are going to spend the bulk of our time, if not all of our time, this morning. All right. And I have a really bad habit at my church of leaning on the pulpit, so I hope I don't do that this morning. Or I might fall over. But this morning, as, is, as, is, uh, as you already know, the topic is uh, everyday mission. And I want to just start off by giving you kind of a summary statement on what I think that means and what I think we see from Jeremiah 29. And that is that our everyday mission as Christians is to love God and love people in the places that God has put us. It's, it's not really all that innovative. It's nothing new. There's nothing avant-garde about it. It's, it's really just kind of obeying Jesus and keeping the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But as pastors know, and as I think all of us probably know, we're not always very good at it. We don't always love God and love people. It's a challenge for us Uh, Think about this from the the book, The Art of Neighboring. Uh, A couple of pastors in the Denver area wrote this book a few years ago, and I'm going to read just a couple of paragraphs to kind of make the point that I just stated. This is one of the authors. He says, in 2009, uh, I, Dave, gathered a group of 20 lead pastors in the Denver area so that we could think, dream, and pray about how our churches might join forces to serve our community. And so we invited our local mayor to join us, and we asked him a simple question. How can we as churches best work together to serve our city? And then the ensuing discussion uh, revealed a laundry list of social problems that you would probably expect, especially in a large city, but uh, in really just all parts of society, you see this. Uh, You had at-risk kids, uh, areas where there were dilapidated houses, child hunger, drug and alcohol abuse, loneliness, elderly shut-ins with nobody to take care of them, and the list just goes on and on and on. And then the mayor said something that inspired this joint church movement that they started in Denver. He said that the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. Let that sink in for a second. The majority of issues facing the community would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. After the mayor left the meeting that day, the group of pastors was left to reflect on what he had just shared, and Jay, the other author, remembers sitting there, and before he could even think about it, he just blurted out, am I the only one here who's just a little embarrassed? I mean, here we are asking the mayor how we can best serve the city, and he basically just tells us that it would be great if we could get our people to obey the second half of the great commandment. In a word, the mayor just invited a room full of pastors to get their people to actually obey Jesus. We don't always do this very well, myself included. It sounds... Pretty simple, love God, love people in the places that he puts you, 
but we don't always do that well. And I think if we look at Jeremiah 29 this morning, what we're going to see is a, a great picture, not only of that everyday mission that we are called to as God's people, but we're going to see the love of God that drives that mission. So, again, if you have your Bibles with you or you have it on your phone, follow along as I read from Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. This is, this is God's word, and it is good news to us. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, from whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of this city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when, I, when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word. What I want to do uh, to begin with this morning is tell you, first of all, there's just two points. So if the first one seems long, don't think that we've got two or three more really long points. There's only two points. And the first thing that I want us to consider is the love of God that drives our everyday mission. If we don't get that right, then the mission just becomes about shaming and guilting uh, you into living a life a certain way. Unless you understand the love of God, unless I understand the love of God that drives mission, then the mission just becomes more of the hamster wheel that we run on. So let's start off with the, the love of God that drives our everyday mission. And, and notice first and foremost that this is a letter to exiles. We need to understand the context of of what is going on here, if we're going to understand the love uh, of God that is expressed in this passage. The term exile, not all of us use that all the time. We, I don't want to assume that everyone knows what that means. Uh, the exile refers to the time when God's people, Israel of old, had been sent out of the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he had brought uh, the Israelites to out of Egypt, 
uh, through Moses and ultimately Joshua, that land of promise, eventually they were sent out of that land and they were sent into foreign captivity. Uh, specifically here, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah being sent into exile in Babylon. The question is, why are they in exile? Why are they sent out of the land? And we won't, for time's sake, we won't go and read all of this, but if you were to go over this afternoon and look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 4 through 13, you'd find out that the reason the Israelites had been cast out of the land, the reason they were experiencing this temporary expression of God's wrath and displeasure was because they had forsaken him. They had turned their backs on him in their false worship, their worship of other gods. They had forsaken him for, for gods that can't hear and can't see and can't speak and can't act the way the God of the Exodus and the God of creation can. If you go back in the story to Deuteronomy chapter 4 as an example, you can find out that it was anticipated even in the final days of Moses that this would happen. When he said that someday when you act corruptly by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord and so provoke him to anger, he will drive you out of the land and he will scatter you among the nations. And that's not a small thing because what we have here in microcosm, it's just a small example of all of our sinful rebellion against God. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you don't really understand some of this discussion about sin, understand that at, the, at its core, sin is our heart rebellion against God. It's the fact that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship the creature rather than the creator. That is why we are so obsessed with work and money and sex and fame and you name it. It's because we have made those things God, and ultimately we make ourselves God because those things are things that we can control, or at least we think we can control them. And Israel had done that as a nation, as a people, and so God had cast them out of the land in order that they might for a time experience this, this expression of his wrath and his anger against sin that will on the last day be poured out on all those who don't trust in him. And that's why they're in exile. That's why they have been, as the, as the language of the Old Testament uses it, that's why they've been vomited out of the land. It was because of their unfaithfulness to the God who had called them as his people. But how does the Lord then address them in the context of exile? As they're experiencing this discipline, how does he address them? The Lord pursues his people in love. We can see that in verses 10 and 11 and 14. You notice in verse 10 that he pledges his ongoing steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. Now, he doesn't do that using that language of steadfast love and faithfulness, but that is what is driving him to speak to the people in the way he does. Notice verse 10. He says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Now, let's just pause there for a second. The context of that. There have been those, if you look at verse 9, there have been false prophets who've been saying that this exile is not going to last very long, that they might as well not even get comfortable because eventually they're going to go back to the land and that's going to be pretty soon. But the Lord speaks into that and says, no, 
This is going ha- to last 70 years, and as we understand from the rest of the story, it lasts even longer than that. But what he's saying here is after 70 years, after my discipline has reached its perfection, if you will, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to the land of promise, back to the place where I have promised to dwell with you and to bless you. He's pledging his ongoing steadfast love and faithfulness, the love that only his people can expect to receive. And notice that this is, a, this is an outworking of his fixed plan. This isn't just an accident of history. This isn't God kind of making things up as he goes along. This is part of his plan from the beginning. He's always pursued his people even in their sin. Think about Adam and Eve. They go hiding and he comes looking for them. Where are you? This is part of his fixed plan to restore them to himself in love. Look at verse 11. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then skip down to verse 14, about halfway through. He says, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations, all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. It's emphasized throughout that the Lord is the one who sent them into exile. And it's he who is going to pursue them and bring them back and bring them back to himself. He knows what he's going to do. He knows how the story is going to unfold. Nothing surprises him. Everything is done for a purpose that he might glorify himself and that he might restore and renew his people. Notice that this future and this hope that is in, this, in, these, in verse 11. That's not about health and wealth and prosperity. It's not, it's not about us having our best life now. Uh, I know I've received that as, as like a card or something when I graduated high school or graduated college, and it's, it's well-meaning, but that's not what this is about. This is about the hope that exiles have. This is about the hope that those who have sinned against the Lord have, that he will restore them. It's not even that, the hope isn't even that the Lord is going to bring them back to the land and he's going to reestablish the law and his, co- and his covenant and his commandments in that way where the people obey it. It's not like what the, the Pharisees thought it meant where if we just gird up uh, or, or pick up our bootstraps and, and roll up our sleeves and just try harder to obey the law, that then there will be hope. No, the future and the hope is all about what God is going to do to be present with his people, and to restore fellowship with him. And ultimately, that that promise, that future and that hope is not fully realized until the person of Jesus comes. If we want to understand this passage in its fullness, we have to understand, we have to know that the, the, the future and the hope that he promises, the presence and the fellowship that he promises here is not complete until the person of Jesus comes and suffers and dies and rises again. And even it's not finished until he comes again on the last day to make all things new. You see, Jesus came to create in himself a new people. 
He came to create in himself a people who would be reconciled or restored to God. Remember, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God in Jesus was reconciling the world to himself. And that was something that was going to be affected by his cross and ultimately his empty tomb and the authority that he has in heaven and on earth. It's in Christ Jesus now that we have been restored to fellowship with God as we are united to him by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the good news. That is the good news of the gospel. That the goal of our salvation, just like the goal of the return from exile, is and always has been our enjoyment of God's presence with us as his people, ultimately in the new earth. This has always been the future and the hope of God's people. This is our future and our hope now, even as we enjoy the first fruits of that as believers in the Holy Spirit among us, individually and as his people corporately, collectively. But notice that the love that drives the mission, the love that makes us his people, is a love that pursues us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our unbelief, it pursues us even to the point of death on the cross. That Jesus had to become man. He had to dwell among us. He had to take on our flesh. He had to take on our brokenness. He had to take on our guilt. He had to take on our sin. He had to become sin for us. So that having received the righteousness of God, having become the righteousness of God, we might enjoy fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we get to enjoy the fellowship of love that the three persons of the Trinity have shared with each other for eternity. And it's because we have a God who pursues us. Now, I know that sometimes I can be a little bit dense and very highbrow in my theology, and I don't want to lose you. So if you think about the story Runaway Bunny, lighten it up a little bit. If you have kids or grandchildren or you've had this read to you, you know this story. It is a beautiful picture of the God who pursues us even as we run from him in our sin and rebellion. As Israel did of old, as we do, even as we confessed earlier, there was once a little bunny who wanted to run away. And so he said to his mother, I'm running away. She said, if you run away, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. If you become a fisherman, said the little bunny, I will become a rock on the mountain high above you. If you become a rock on the mountain high above me, said his mother, I will become a mountain climber and I will climb to wherever you are. If you become a mountain climber, said the little bunny, I'll become a crocus in a hidden garden. If you become a crocus in a hidden garden, said his mother, I will be a gardener and I will find you. If you are a gardener and find me, said the little bunny, I'll be a bird and fly away from you. She becomes a tree that he will take shelter in. Well, if you become a tree, said the little bunny, I'll become a sailboat and I'll sail away from you. Well, she'll become the wind and blow him wherever he is to go. Well, if you become the wind and blow me where I am to go, said the little bunny, I will become a 
I will join a circus and fly away on a flying trapeze. She'll become a tightrope walker and walk across to wherever he is. Well, if you become a tightrope walker, walk across the air, said the bunny, I will become a little boy and run into a house. Well, if you become a little boy and run into a house, said the mother, I will become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. Chuck said the little bunny, I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. She says, have a carrot. <laughs> no matter how hard we try as God's people to run from him, even in our sin and rebellion against him, he pursues us. He pursues us even to the point of death that we might experience his love. And he says, eat, drink, and remember that I love you from eternity past into eternity future. That is the God that pursues us and loves us. That is the love that owns us as God's people. That's the love that drives our everyday mission. If we don't get that love, then we're just spinning our wheels trying to be good people and that's going to get us nowhere. But if we've understood that love, if we've understood that love that pursues us, even as enemies of God, then we have received and known the greatest love that can ever be expressed. And if that isn't amazing to you, if that isn't the best news you've ever heard, then you haven't understood it. But if you have understood it, then that drives your everyday mission to love God to love people and to do that in the places that he has put you, the places that he's put us. So let's consider now this everyday mission, to love God first and foremost. If you look at, if you look at Jeremiah 29, verses 12 through 13, after promising this future and this hope, he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's language that's actually reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31, when God had promised that his anger would be poured out on them when they worshipped false gods. And even then there was the promise that his people would one day call upon him, and he would hear them, and he would, they would seek him, and they would find him when? When they seek him with all of their heart, when their affections have been transformed by his love for them, and now they delight in him. Now their affections are for him and for him alone. As they seek him in worship, as they depend upon him in prayer, they find him. Because here's the, 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 the right, or the immediate right response to that love that pursues us even to the point of death, the right response to that is to surrender ourselves, all of who we are, to the God who has pursued us in love. Because ultimately, as John Piper puts it, God is the gospel. God is the good news as he pursues us and gives him himself. But it gets even more specific. He gives, him him, he gives us himself in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. It is he that God gives us as he gives us 
himself that we might enjoy fellowship with him. And so our everyday mission begins by responding to that love with the love of God, the love of God with, every, with, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of who we are surrendered to him. But notice then that the natural response to that or the natural fruit of that, if you will, the natural outcome of the love of God is the love of people. If you're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I can promise you, you're not loving people. You might use the language. You might do really kind and good things. But if you're not loving the Lord your God with all of who you are, then you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're not loving people. But if you, in fact, do love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the natural outflowing of that, the natural application of that love is that you will then be a faithful presence of God's love with the people that you are around, and you will embody God's love for you and for his people in the way that you treat the people around you. And we can see this in in Jeremiah 29. Again, it's important to recognize, too, that he's not talking to super Christians. He's not talking to people that are, uh, he's not speaking only of kind of the, the, the Christian hierarchy, right? He's not just talking to the pastors and the elders, uh, and those people that have gone to seminary. He's talking to average, everyday people. I don't know if you caught it, verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah the, uh, and the, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. He's already talked about the fact that the prophets and the priests uh, and the elders have all been sent into exile as well. He's talking to everybody in the church, from those that work in the government to those who uh, work uh, on the construction site. He's talking to those in academia. He's talking to those uh, who work white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs, those that stay at home with their children. Every single one of us are called to this everyday mission because he's addressing every single one of us as members of his covenant community. It's average people called to a variety of jobs, set in a variety of contexts with a variety of people around them, but we're all called to the same thing, love God and love people. And we do that in the mundane, everyday aspects of our lives. Look at verses 4 and 6 as the letter to the exiles begins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Move into your neighborhoods. Move in and live. Be part of the HOA if you have one. Live in your houses. Plant your gardens or go to your grocery stores. Go to, go to Publix. Go to Kroger. Go to Costco. Do what, it, what you need to do to provide for your family. And by the way, have a family. Get married. Have children. 
Your children can have children. Give your children off to other people to, to get married. Live your lives as you would every day, even if you were back in Jerusalem. Just do the mundane things that you're supposed to do. Get up Monday morning. Go to work. Come home. Take the kids to the ball field. Go to your small group. Go back to the ball field. Take them to tutoring. Take them to music lessons. Do what you do with the people around you. But notice that you don't just do it for the sake of doing it. There's a little throwaway line in there where he says, the very end, do not multiply, or do not, he says, multiply and do not decrease. Now we might read that and think, okay, fine. He's just saying, have lots of kids, build a community that is respectable in Babylon or in Kennesaw. That language is fraught with theological significance. What did God say to Adam and Eve when he created them? Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. What did he say to Abraham when he called him? But I will multiply you and make your name great. And in you and your seed after you, the nations will be blessed. The idea of multiplication assumes that God's people are called wherever they are to be a blessing, to be a blessing to the people around them and to the, to the, the institutions around them, the schools and the, the offices and, and, and the government and, and whatever institution, whatever people you come in contact with. Christians are called to be a blessing, but not just in and of themselves. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that when, when Moses wrote that Abraham and his seed after him would be a blessing, that seed, that offspring, was ultimately the person of Jesus. So if you want to know what it means for us to be a blessing in Kennesaw or Buckhead or Marietta or Ackworth or wherever, give people Jesus. Give people Jesus both in the way you live your life in community with his people the way you love your children, the way you love your spouse, the way you love your friends and your coworkers, simply by being a Christian and embodying the love of God, you have an opportunity to give people Jesus and bless them. But do it also by paying attention to the opportunities that you have to make what is implicit in your life explicit as you talk with one another about the Lord, as you talk about his mercy and his grace and his love in your life. Not just with one another, but with your family and your neighbors and your co-workers and the people that you recreate with. Those that you are on the ball field or in the gym or on the golf course or going hunting with or knitting with or whatever it is you do for recreation. People need Jesus. That's what we need. That's what the world needs. That is what we are called to give people, even as we give it to one another in the places that God puts us. Notice he says, seek the welfare of the city or the place where I have sent you. One of the ways you do that is by praying on its behalf, praying for the city or the town or the school and the people in those places. But you can't really pray for people very well if you don't know them. In the book, 
the art of neighboring, one of the things that they point out is the fact that most of us living in a traditional neighborhood, if you were to ask us what are the names of the people that live in the four houses closest to you, I can't remember, it's something like 88% of us couldn't name all four, and about half of us couldn't even name half of the people that live in the closest proximity. Maybe you're the exception to the rule, but that's where most of us are, because what do we do? We get up, we go to the garage, we get in the car, we back out, we go to work, we come back, we go in the garage, we shut the door, we go back in our house, and all of our neighbors do the same thing. We, are in a, we live in a time when community is not easy, so we have to be proactive. And we can't pray for the people if we don't know them and we don't know their hurts and their fears and their pain and their suffering. So what are we supposed to do? We've been pursued in love, even to the point of death. And so what we're called to do as those who have been transformed by God's love is we are to love God and love people and do it by pursuing them in love. And we do that just by being God's people. I'm going to close with this illustration because, not because I think I'm a hero or that I'm the good example, but as Cam said, I try to do this in my life. And this is one of the ways in which I've seen just mundane everyday activity lead to mission. About three years ago, I had one of our elders invited me out for a drink. And we were just going to go to this local um, pub restaurant. It's only open three days a week. It's an extremely local place that people in the neighborhood walk to. And so we just went one Thursday afternoon to grab, to grab dinner and a drink. And we sat at the bar and just talked. We just talked about work, family. We talked about our personal struggles with sin and unbelief. We talked about uh, church life and ministry uh, and all of the different things that, that we all experience. Disappointments in the office, uh, struggles with aging parents, um, uh, tension with other people in the church, whatever it might be. We, we're just talking about these things and talking about our struggles and, and talking about the Lord together and his mercy in our lives. We were just being faithful Christians, building one another up in love. And the people around us started to listen and started to pay attention and started to ask a lot of questions. Some encouraged us. Some wanted to know more about what we were talking about and what in the world a pastor was doing sitting at a bar drinking cocktails. But over the last three years, we have invited multiple people to church and church activities. We have shared the gospel explicitly with dozens of people. We have prayed with people at the bar. The bartender introduces me to folks as Pastor Dave, and that almost always leads to spiritual conversations. I got to marry the bartender and her boyfriend and preach the gospel to their very progressive group of friends and family members. All because when I went out to the bar for a drink, I didn't just check Jesus and my faith at the door, but I talked about it with my friend. And now others from the church come, 
And people know that at any given time on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, half the folks sitting at the bar are from our church. And spiritual conversations are happening continuously. I don't know what that is for you. That might be the shooting range. That might be Starbucks. It might be Jay Christopher's where you go for business meetings and you show up early. Use your imaginations. It's the school board. It's the HOA. It's the swim team. Use your imaginations and then go together and love the place that God has put you and do it for his glory in response to his amazing love and do it for the good of this part of metro Atlanta. Do it for the good of those that God has put you around in his providence. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would write this word on our hearts, that you would captivate our imaginations with the goodness of your love for us and the mission that you call us to. Give us eyes to see not only the glory and the majesty of Jesus, but give us eyes to see the people around us and the opportunities that you have given us to share the love of God in Christ Jesus, opportunities that you've given us to be a blessing to the places or in the places and to the people that you've put us around. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.